Good morning at home. Good morning those here in person. Here at North Sub, we believe that this book is different from any other book. Uh, Living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. That means that when we read it, when we hear it preached on a morning like this one, we believe we actually get to encounter the living God in these pages. So let's pray that we have hearts that are receptive to what he wants to use his word to do in us in the coming minutes. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. It's a punchline now, uh, entitled Millennials, right? We were raised being told how incredibly unique and exceptional we were. We're given participation trophies just for trying. We were told constantly we could be anything that we wanted to be. Now, we didn't choose to raise ourselves that way. So I'm not always sure why we get criticized for how our parents chose to raise us. Never mind that. Now's our chance, though. We are the ones who are having kids. So after all the mockery that we have endured for acting as though the world should bow at our feet, what have we adopted as our parenting philosophy? Uh, Your local Kids Are Us has the answer. Uh, This is uh, what you'll see. You're braver than you believe, stronger than you seem, smarter than you think, and more loved than you know, we put in our kids' nurseries. Um, Now, will none of us have a kid who is, uh, thinks he's smarter than he actually is? Uh, What else? She believed she could, so she did. What happens when I have a daughter one day who believed that she can play in the WNBA but only grows up to be five foot two? I don't know. Somewhere inside of all of us is the power to change the world. The future is yours, right? And this is my favorite one. Uh, You've probably seen this in some form in a lot of different places now. A lot of my friends have this up. Let him sleep. Put this over the crib, right? Let him sleep, for when he wakes, he will move mountains. Or try to flush his toothbrush down the toilet, but uh, one or the other. Um, Now, please don't hear me bashing all this, actually. I... Part of me loves it. There are significant portions of this messaging that Sarah and I are passing on to our kids. Uh, but I realized on my first trip to Kids R Us a couple years back uh, that with every generation, it seems like we may be increasingly helping each other approach life something like this. The world is the stage for your personalized life movie, right? And you're the star of the show. You landed the lead role. Sure, there'll be supporting actors, your family, your friends. But this is about you. You climb that ladder of achievement and don't let anybody get in your way. Jesus' disciples had adopted some form of that mindset, that they were the stars of the show, and it comes out in our text today. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 20? Matthew chapter 20. As you're turning there, a reminder that we are now a couple weeks into a sermon series entitled Jesus versus Idols, in which we're looking at seven encounters with Jesus, in which he confronts a particular idol in someone's life. 
of course, you know, you'd say, well, nobody worships statues anymore, right? So what do, you, what do we mean by idols? Refresher, really quick, on how we defined it last week. We, uh, we said idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator. It doesn't have to be a golden statue, but any created things that we trust rather than the creator. An idol is something then in creation that claims the place in my heart that only God should have. Uh, and then the third way we came at it last week was Tim Keller saying this, an idol is anything in your life that is so central to your life that you can't have a meaningful life if you lose it. It's that thing in your life about which you say, if I have that, then my life has value. Then my life has meaning. And if I would lose that, I don't know how I would live. Those are idols. That means our idols are often good things, actually that go wrong only because we turn them into ultimate things. So last week we looked at wealth as an idol, Matthew 19. Nothing inherently wrong with having wealth, but when we treasure it above Jesus, he calls, it to, he calls us to lay it down, as we saw, to experience the lasting treasure found only in him. Today's idol is that of position or rank, right? The desire to be first, or at least to be more prominent than others. To play a starring role in my personalized life movie. What would be more tragic after all, right, in today's world to live life as a supporting actor, right? Or God forbid, as an extra. I want to be seen. I I want to lead. I want to be out front and center. That's what our world is selling us. And maybe some of us would already admit this morning, yeah, I've bought into that. We're not the first to struggle with that idol of position, though. We do see it in Jesus' disciples in this conversation that we will pick up now in verse 20. Uh, Before we start reading, this passage we'll see unfolds in three parts. The request of a mother, the response of Jesus, and the anger of the disciples. But each of those three sections focuses on a key theme. So uh, we can actually flesh out our outline like this. The request of a mother and the desire for position the response of Jesus and the necessity of suffering, the anger of the disciples in the way of service. So position, suffering, service uh, will be the kind of three themes that we look at in these three sections of the text. Let's look at the first one. The request of a mother and the desire for position. Follow along with me, verses 20 and 21 of Matthew chapter 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. There's an individual in in my life who has ended uh, almost all of our conversations for the last 15 years like this. Whatever you need. You know that, Timmy? You told me, Timmy. Whatever you need, just say it. And he happens to be powerful and wealthy enough that I think I probably do kind of carry around in my pocket uh, one big ask, so to speak. Right? So, like, I think from time to time when a need arises, is this the time? Is this the time for my ask? I think something like that may be happening here in our text. The crowds around Jesus are growing. He's performing more miracles. He's making his way to Jerusalem. His disciples are realizing, wait, we have the absolute closest proximity possible to the Messiah, right? 
uh, we're his best friends. Is this the time for our ask? Right? And Jesus actually has fueled that thinking. Like in the previous chapter, verse, chapter 19, verse 28, when he actually told them, hey, just so you guys know, when I sit on my throne one day, you guys, you 12, are going to sit on 12 thrones of your own, ruling beside me. That's an exciting thought. So that triggers a request from one of the 12, James and John, from two of the 12. James and John, they get strategic about this. They want to do everything they can to increase the likelihood of their request being granted. So they actually up the proximity factor even more by calling on their mom, who most scholars believe to be Mary's sister, Salome, and therefore Jesus' aunt, right? So maybe it went something like this, mom, sure, we're, I mean, we're close to Jesus as his disciples and his cousins, but your aunt Salome to him, right? He loves you. If, you. if you put in a word for us, he'll definitely listen to you. So we get what we see here. Kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. So note, when James and John decide to call in the big guns, so to speak, for whose benefit do they make their ask? It's themselves, right? They're like, I mean, nothing, Jesus, nothing against the other ten. But we want to make sure we outrank them when you enter your glory. Right? Like when the Netflix documentary inevitably comes out on all this, we want to make sure we're like in the camera shot with you. Uh, kind of there, you're right and left, calling the shots alongside you as much as possible. Is that cool? They make their big ask for their own sake, for the benefit of their position in Christ's heavenly kingdom. Pretty audacious move. But it actually becomes pretty bizarre when you read it in context, because what has Jesus just gotten done telling them? Do you notice that? Peek back a couple of verses. He just said in verses 18 and 19, hey, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered over, condemned to death, mocked, flogged, and crucified. If there was ever a time not to make the story about you, James and John, right? But when we understand ourselves to be the stars in our own life movie, then even when our rabbi is telling us that he's going to be killed, we can't get our minds off making sure our own stories are going to turn out the way we want them to. And it would be almost comical, I think, if I didn't see myself so clearly in their selfish obsession with their own position. But let's set aside for a second the terrible timing of their question. Right? And let me ask this. Is it inherently wrong of James and John to desire to sit at Jesus's left and right in the kingdom. I don't know. If we, if we peek ahead to the rest of the passage, Jesus doesn't rebuke or correct them at all on their desire. Instead, he says, well, if this is what you desire, then let me tell you how to really chase it. If you want to be first, if you want to be great, here's what to do. So if it's not necessarily wrong to desire the position they desire, that does, that that suggests that position or rank can be listed among a number of other good things that aren't bad in and of themselves, but can become idols when we ask them to do for us what only God is meant to do. That's what this series 
is all about. So what are some unhealthy reasons to desire status or rank? I know I've made position an idol at times because I enjoyed the convenience of feeling like God of my little kingdom, right? getting to call the shots. That's what it was for me in high school as a big brother. As a position of authority of rank, right, in a home. Uh, as my friends marveled when we would just be sitting around watching TV and I'd just start counting down from five out loud. And what would happen is my elementary school age sister would just come running from wherever she was and get me a Gatorade from the fridge and bring it to me. <laughs> I've at other times made position an idol because I craved the prestige of that being worshipped like a star. That's what it was for me when my football team in college won the national championship and I realized that this big fat diamond ring that I got was going to be immensely helpful in my first job interviews in the college town in the south where I had just been part of that team. On the other hand though, if James and John had desired to sit on Jesus's right and left in the kingdom purely for the sake of proximity to the Son of God, if that's why they had wanted this, I don't know that Jesus would have faulted them for the request, but in this case, Jesus knows their reasons for craving position aren't pure. And upon closer examination, we might realize our own reasons for craving position aren't entirely pure either. So here we go, right? In, in what ways, let's ask this, in what ways are you and I wanting the divine Son of God to exercise his messianic power to make it easier for us to be the stars of our own life movies? That's the question I want us to just camp out on for a moment. In what ways are we wanting the divine Son of God to exercise his messianic power to make it easier for us to be the stars of our own little movies here? In other words, how does the idol of position manifest itself in your life? Now, maybe you say, this, this particular idol isn't me, right? Position, status, those aren't things that I idolize. And perhaps you don't. But then again, our idols can blind us. As we saw last week, that's a function of idols. Uh, so it can be helpful to do some diagnostic work. We've been using these questions. We'll use these questions from Paul Tripp throughout the series. Three questions. We'll just change the specific idol each time. Um, if your answer is yes to any of these three questions, then it's likely that position has actually become an idol for you in some sense. So here, here we go. First one. Am I willing to sin to attain position? Am I willing to sin to attain a particular position? Am I willing to lie to close the deal that will bump me up the sales rankings in my company? Am I willing to use people as objects to slingshot me on my own path to success? Am I willing to gossip about others to attain positions that I think that I deserve over them? Am I willing to sin to attain position? Second, Am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose position? Like, am I willing to silence and control people who question my leadership? Am I willing to cheat on the test to keep my class rank? Do I put my kids in their place when they defy me, thereby preserving my unquestioned authority over them? Third, do I turn to position as a refuge and comfort instead of going to God? Do I turn to position as a refuge and comfort instead of going to God? Do I comfort myself by imagining a day when, I don't know what it is for you, when you get that verified blue check mark on your social media accounts because you're important? 
Do I comfort myself after a hard day by daydreaming about a new job somewhere where I would work with less challenging people and have more people serving me, maybe? Do I turn to position as a refuge and comfort instead of going to God? It could be that James and John aren't alone in their struggle with this idol. So let's look then at the response of Jesus deals with the necessity of suffering. Verses 22 and 23. Follow along with me as I read. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We're able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. In the kingdom of God, the call to take a position of leadership is a call to suffer. Now, that's not totally unique to the kingdom of God, actually. There's a sort of suffering that comes with worldly position or rank as well, often. This week I read George Clooney talking about how he's just wanted to go for a walk in Central Park for the last 20 years, but can't. Right? Johnny Depp talking about how exhausting it is to constantly have to make a plan to get in and out of every restaurant and hotel. Will Smith talking about how many lawyers he has has to keep on retainer because he gets sued about 15 times a year. There are many high-ranking people who warn, hey, if you think you want to be at the top, you may not know all that you're wishing for. And though it's a different kind of suffering, Jesus suggests here that in a similar way, those who wish to be at the top of the ladder, so to speak, in the kingdom of God, may not realize that they're wishing for a role that involves tremendous suffering. Where am I getting that? Well, I'm looking at this word, the cup, verses 22 and 23. The cup. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? Say we're able. He said, you will drink my cup. What's he talking about there? If you trace the instances of cup throughout the Old Testament, you see it's often a metaphor for someone's God-ordained destiny in life. Uh, the cup of destiny doesn't always include suffering. In Psalm 16 and in Psalm 116, it doesn't. Uh, but usually it does. Jeremiah 25, Isaiah 51 are two notable examples there if you want to check that out. So what's Jesus' cup? What's his God-given destiny? He's just told them, hasn't he? Verses 18 and 19. It's a cup of suffering for him. Verse 18 and 19, I'm going to be condemned to death, mocked, flogged, crucified. So he asks them, can you drink the cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? And their response is to look at each other yeah, we can do that. We're able. We can drink it. Don't you wonder what they were imagining when they said so definitively that they could drink Jesus' cup? Like, what kind of suffering were they, what, did they, what kind of suffering did they have in mind when they affirmed so quickly with such certainty that they could endure it? What they're probably thinking is, okay, you know, Jesus is talking about death, dying. He's using hyperbole again. He does that sometimes. But point taken, Jesus, it'll probably be pretty hard. We're ready. Those of you who had kids, it's, maybe it's like it's before the birth of your first. Uh, when friends ask you, so are you ready for those sleepless nights? And you're like, yeah, you know, it's going to be tough, but we're ready. Then you come home from the hospital, and the parents and the in-laws are gone. You're all alone. There are no nurses to wheel them down the hall to in the middle of the night so you can close your eyes for just an hour 
and you just want to cry, but you're so tired that you feel like you're just starting to hyperventilate. And you think back to those friends who asked you if you were ready for the sleepless nights, and you're like, oh. Jesus, verse 22, you don't know what you're asking. This is plural, by the way. Y'all don't know what y'all are asking. Which is why I've been painting this picture throughout the sermon that James and John are ultimately behind their mom's request. Right? Jesus understands mom's request to really be the son's request. And the other gospels portray it that way explicitly. James and John don't know what they're asking. How could they know? James is going to be the first apostle killed in Acts chapter 12. John is going to be persecuted, exiled to a prison site. Some traditions even say he was boiled in oil at one point before that and survived. At the time of this conversation, James and John are still picturing that their proximity to Jesus is going to provide a life that's shaped like a crown. It's actually going to provide a life shaped like a cross. So Jesus says, you know, you actually will drink my cup. You're right. He knows they're going to suffer more than they can presently imagine at the time of this encounter. Still, Jesus continues, but the positions that you're asking for aren't actually mine to grant. Which shows us that it's not only James and John who are called to submit to the positions assigned to them, but it's Jesus also modeling his submission to the Father in the position assigned to him. And God has assigned all of us positions, hasn't he? There are areas of life in which all of us hold some sort of elevated place. Higher on the ladder than at least somebody else, Right? You may already hold a position, for example, as a parent, as a grandparent, as an aunt, as an uncle, as an older sibling, as a supervisor or a boss, as a team captain, as a board member, as a mentor, as an older friend. Think for a moment about those areas of life in which you already hold some sort of formal or informal position of recognition or influence. Here's the question. Are we approaching those leadership roles as though they are callings to suffer? Are we approaching our leadership roles as though they are callings to suffer? This question hit me hard this week in various different areas of my life. In my job, I thought I knew seminary students when I entered pastoral ministry that it was a call to suffer, but there's a difference between knowing that in theory and the reality of that pain. And instead of saying, Lord, this is what you told me I would face, I'm grumbling. I find myself grumbling. Like, I can't believe this obstacle is getting in the way of my pastoring. I want the position without the suffering. In the world, too, though, as I read and listen to folks uh, explaining that white males are the cause of many of the world's problems, and therefore, we'd all be better off if we came together and knocked the white guys down a few pegs. I'm like, hey, hold on. I'm not trying to oppress anybody. I wish I could say my approach was, Lord, any relative position that I do have in society, you're the one who gave it to me, and I'll joyfully embrace any suffering that comes with it in the service of others. Instead, I find myself internally kind of kicking and screaming, like, God, I'm not sure exactly where I am on the ladder of society, but I like it where I am. Don't let me get knocked down. I want the position without the suffering. I'll tell you, though, I'm most convicted of this as a dad. 
<clears throat> I've been given authority over my toddlers. To have position is to expect and endure suffering. I know that intellectually, but instead of expecting to suffer, it seems like every time they cause me pain by their disobedience or disrespect, I'm shocked and devastated, which reveals this delusional, honestly anti-Christian world of my expectations in which these toddlers will spend their waking hours working tirelessly to make me feel appreciated and loved and respected. I want the position without the suffering. But if I'm a disciple of Jesus, it should be the least surprising thing in the world that I suffer, right? Remember 1 Peter 4? We looked at it a year and a half ago as we walked through that book. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And friends, that's to all believers. Now tack on that Jesus says position will bring with it an extra measure of suffering, and it becomes even more silly that I constantly seem to react to suffering as though something strange was happening to me. Third and finally, we've seen the request of a mother desire for position. We've seen the response of Jesus and the necessity of suffering. Finally, the anger of the disciples in the way of service. Verses 24 to 28, follow along with me as I read. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Some here this morning, some watching online, surely there's some here who gravitate toward an anti-hierarchy, non-competitive, everybody should be equal kind of approach to life. So the anger of the 10 in verse 24 probably resounds with you, right? Like this isn't cool, James and John, you go behind our backs to try to get ahead of us. None of us should be ahead of the others. We should all be equal. But there's a caution here, I think, in, in in how this plays out. First of all, in God's heavenly kingdom, not all will have an equal rank. Do you notice that? Jesus is comfortable speaking of first and last in the kingdom. He speaks of people who are put in charge of much and others who are put in charge of little at times. And we see here in verse 23 that Jesus does nothing to correct the idea that there'll be some people closer and others farther from the throne. So heaven may not be the complete flattening out that some of us think it will be. And in light of that, the indignance of the 10 here in verse 24 becomes maybe a bit of a mirror for the most egalitarian of us. Here's what I mean specifically. It raises the question, am I really being guided by a deep concern that everyone is equal? Or do I just not want anybody to be higher than me? Think about it this way. If Jesus had announced in this moment that one of the 10 not James and John, but one of the ten had been granted the right-hand spot. Do we think that individual would have complained in that moment about it being unequal? Jesus' response here indicates that he can see their real concern wasn't actually equality, but rather that no one would be ahead of me. 
And of course, that makes them no different than James and John, right? Who were just maybe more forthcoming with their desire that no one would rank ahead of them. Verse 24 reminds us, I think, to be careful that our indignance at the ultra-ambitious isn't just jealous resentment masquerading as virtue, right? We've got to be careful that our indignance at the ultra-ambitious out there isn't just jealous resentment masquerading as virtue. To Jesus, idolatry of position isn't just a James and John problem. It's a problem for all the twelve. So he calls them all in to huddle up, to explain to all of them what they were all still missing, that the greatest in the kingdom is the one who's the lowliest servant here. The greatest in the kingdom is the one who's the lowliest servant here. Of course, that's as sharp of a break from the world of their day as it is from our day. Verses 25 and 26, you saw what he said? Uh, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority of, over them. It shall not be so among you. Their experience with Gentile rulers would have been Roman officials. In that world, you make sure everybody knows who's boss. You demand respect. You don't tolerate disloyalty. And according to Jesus, it's supposed to be different in his kingdom which means it's different in the church, the outpost of his kingdom. But is it actually different? Too often, the church, Christian leaders like myself have failed in this regard. But how's it supposed to work in God's kingdom? What we see here is that the way it's supposed to work is that those who want to be great roll up their sleeves to become servants. And you say, well, that's good news. Check that box. Servant leader right here. That's me. Here's the thing, though. Jesus knows that most of us think of ourselves or like to think of ourselves as servant leaders, right? So in what seems like a subtle challenge to us to further assess ourselves, Jesus actually clarifies. Do you notice that? Whoever wants to be first must be not just your servant, but what? Your slave, end of verse 27. Your slave. Now, if you take a close look at the Greek, that word slave really means slave. Straightforward. It's clear. The, the mindset that we have to adopt if we want to be first in God's kingdom is, okay, I'm these people's slave. This is such a radical redefining of what it means to be great, what it means to be first, that it can be hard to even imagine what that would look like for someone to live this way. Uh, where were the 12 supposed to get a model of this, in other words, where, so that they could see it in action? But that's how the exchange concludes, doesn't it? Jesus says, actually, hey, uh, I'm the model. Verses 27 and 28. When he calls himself son of man there, in those verses, even as the son of man came, uh, that's his favorite term for himself. He's bringing in a whole freight of Old Testament texts when he says that. Uh, that when taken together, talk about this glorious one who rides on the clouds, but also, paradoxically, is a suffering servant. I think it's intentional usage here, because he's saying, look to me, notice how I haven't looked to you all to serve me, despite the fact that I had the right to in my position as your rabbi, not to mention as the Messiah, the one who's going to come riding on the clouds. Instead, I've sought to serve you. I've climbed my way down the ladder to the lowest possible rung to get down, wash your feet. Now, verse 28 could have ended right there with, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That would be a powerful 
verse, right? What would be lost if we lost that last phrase, to give his life as a ransom for many? Think about that for a second. I think for me, this passage would actually be crushing without that last phrase. Here's why. Because I've tried to live like Jesus and I know that I can't on my own strength. I've tried to imitate his selfless service. Be like me, the one who laid down his life, the one who, who, who came not to be served, but to serve. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that today. Can't do it. I find myself trying to order my world around me time and time again. Uh, that's why that last phrase is all important. Came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Without that phrase, we're like vehicles blessed with a perfect GPS, but no fuel. The Son of Man knew he wouldn't be able to imitate his life of service. The GPS wouldn't be enough, so he went beyond just setting an example for us of a life of service. He gave his life for us as a ransom in our place, and that ransom is like the fuel that empowers the car to go somewhere. To follow the GPS of his example, the ransom is the price paid to set a slave free. Back when you and I were enslaved to all manner of things, including the never-ending chase of status and position, we couldn't follow Jesus, no matter how hard we tried. But the good news is that our Lord Jesus paid the price to set us free from that idolatry and every other idolatry. He paid for it so that we wouldn't have to and broke the chains so that you and I could walk a new way with him as the one our hearts chase after, regardless of what positions we may or may not happen to have at any given moment. So our big idea today is this. In order to achieve greatness in God's kingdom, let's embrace suffering service. We can only do that as we look to what he did at the cross, as he emptied himself, as he went from the highest place to the lowest place, voluntarily on our behalf. In order to achieve greatness in God's kingdom, let's embrace suffering service. You know, James and John, they were so initially, so consumed by, uh, with a vision of the world that had themselves and their position at the center of it all, that they made even Jesus a supporting character in their story at the outset of our passage. He was there to help them attain what they wanted. However, after this conversation, and then after Jesus died for James and John, and then after he sent his Holy Spirit to empower them to walk according to his, his example, these two, they do a 180. James was killed pretty soon after, as we said, in Acts 12. But John in particular, think about the transformation he underwent. Right? In Luke 9, he and, and James together are called the Sons of Thunder. And you can see kind of why they get that nickname. There's a story there in Luke 9 when a village won't give Jesus a place to stay. And James and John say, hey, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven on the village? We'll do it. That's their approach to life. But by the time John dies, he's known as the apostle of love. He's writing books of the Bible in which he's saying things like, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. It's probably apocryphal, maybe not, but there's a legend that in John's older years, and he lived to be very old, he would just be carried around on a mat, and all he would say to everybody is, little children, love one another. Little children. This is a son of thunder, right? There's somebody who is transformed 
by the power of Christ in such a way that he went from climbing the ladder and stepping on any of the chumps who got in his way to scrambling down the ladder to love and serve others in response to the selfless love of Jesus who had now become the center of his universe. Friends, if you've never experienced that transformation, there's no reason today couldn't be the day that God does that work in your heart. Call out to him. Ask him to dethrone you from the leading role in your story and place your faith in him to save you, to make you new. If you have experienced that transformation, let's do this together this week. Let's pick one place in our lives where we can climb down the ladder, so to speak, seeking to serve instead of to be served, embracing the suffering service that is the path to true greatness in God's kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we are good at making ourselves the center. It's been true since the third chapter of the Bible that we've wanted to dethrone you from your place as God and take the central position in our stories. We've resented our supporting roles ever since. And we live in a world that feeds that, that fuels it in the media and advertising and uh, fanning the flames of self-obsession and desire to climb the ladder and achieve more and more for ourselves and our own sakes. Lord, we know we're in danger of this idol blinding us, this idol replacing you in our hearts, this idol being something that we treasure above you. May it not be so. As we become aware of this idol and the hold it may have in our heart at different points, help us to lay it down and help us to seek true greatness, true position in your kingdom by climbing down the ladder to the lowest position of a servant. In Jesus' name, amen.